Now, that particular little chef d'oeuvre is entitled Soul Coaxing by Raymond Lefebvre and his orchestra. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and this word came to me. You've got to talk about soul coaxing. Now, um, you know, in the creative enterprise, we think that, you know, you get some big, massive, systematic idea, and then you want to present it, or you have some great uh, word to offer. And in fact, these podcasts are really about the music. I'm actually more interested in the music than I am in the ideas. Or, to put it another way, the music, for me, um, catalyze and... um, uh, create the the field uh, in which the ideas um, grow, and um, this really is about soul coaxing. Now that a song was a kind of an attempt to um, capitalize on the success of Paul Moriart's uh, "Love Is Blue," which we heard last time, and it came out I think in March or so of 1968, and was enormously successful. And in fact, it's a very interesting success, and it has everything to do with you and me as we think about what is really happening in our lives versus what we think ought to be happening in our lives or what the world in some form of uh, input that we receive is telling us ought to be happening in our lives. The question is never what ought to be happening or what um, somebody else thinks is the um, pattern for our lives, but what actually is happening. And had you lived in the spring of 1968, you might not have known that it was called Soul Coaxing, more on the title later. You might have never heard of Raymond Lefebvre and his orchestra but you heard this song. It was everywhere. It was just plain everywhere. And uh, it was sort of in the elevators, as it were, although you didn't have elevator music uh, yet. But it was all around. And you would have thought to yourself, you know, that's a really pretty song, and I'd like to hear that again. And that's why it became so successful. You know, um, the thing about that song is, unless you are made of stone, my dear uh, listener, I believe that if you listen to that again, you'll want to listen to it again. And you'll want to listen to it again and again and again. Recently, when I encountered that song that I knew from long ago at a subconscious uh, dimension, when I encountered it actually, I listened to it ten times. La-da-da-da, la-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, la-da-da-da-da, la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-
a story or what is today called a narrative into facts that somehow they've devised. It's kind of a head trip or a conceptuality or an agenda, some sort of ideological projection upon facts that sort of controls them. It has a little bit to do with control. Recently, we saw uh, more American Graffiti. I'm one of those, and I'm sure you are, that thinks that the original movie, American Graffiti, which came out in 1973, is one of the great movies. I mean, I think it is. That is a. It combines a romantic, musical, choreographed version of cruising culture in a certain milieu in 1962 with a deeply touching human drama. And it sort of combines the romantic with the real, you might say. But later on, they did a somewhat successful um, sequel to it. George Lucas produced it. A friend of his directed it called More American Graffiti. And it's pretty good. It's surprisingly good, as we used to say, of uh, horror films to our very um, skeptical parents and rather worried parents. But um, it's surprisingly good, More American Graffiti. But it's good to the extent that it has human stories. It's no good to the extent that it projects a kind of Haight-Ashbury vibe, split screen, a lot of silly um, cultural narratives on what was just growing up. It's distinguished when it talks about real people and lost love and gained love and personal disillusionment. The point is, life is lived by you. And life is lived by the two of us. It's not lived in reference to what somebody else thinks it ought to be lived in or was lived in. Your life is your own. And you could have been um, right there smack dab in the middle of uh, late uh, mid-1968, late spring of 68. And um, the fact of the matter is you were listening to Merrily Rush, Angel of the Morning. So hoping it would be your story vis-a-vis your girlfriend, you know, that that Merrily Rush's lament would be her lament, you know. Um, Good morning, girl. How'd you sleep last night? You're several ages older now. Your eyes have started showing how. Well, that was uh, by Neon Philharmonic. And that's where we were. What was going on in the mind of the speaker in that song is where almost all of us were in some form or another of fulfillment or frustration or paralysis or depression. We were all living there. We were living in the world of uh, l'amour et bleu and uh, and uh, soul coaxing. We were not living in the world of Jimi Hendrix and Buffalo Springfield. They were there, especially Buffalo Springfield, and we certainly knew what it was like to, you know, watch the Massachusetts National Guard, you know, is that a what is it, tautology or something? It, it, it seemed pretty lame even then, uh, confronting the Harvard students in Harvard Square throwing stones and listening to Street Fighting Man by the stones pouring out of the the uh, the windows of Weld, you know, and Pennypacker and the dorms in the yard. That, that That's what we maybe... Uh, but it was really just a fun adventure. It was a romantic adventure with a little bit of knowledge, but not much. And um, a little bit of ideas, but it was much more about girls and stones and and games and uh, a little bit of self-righteousness thrown in that was mostly choreographed by people much older than we. My point is soul coaxing tells you a little bit about life because if that was in fact the story of what was going on, and by the way, he wrote it in the spring of 68 en France and what was happening in Paris in the spring of 68. I mean, I have a, I had known people in France and family that I'd lived with and that I loved um, sent us, my family in Washington, a photograph uh, of uh, what had happened to their little de chevaux. One of the son of the family used to drive one of those little de chevaux cars around Paris. And um, during the riot, 
riots after the you know the student riots of 1968 so they had in fact, sadly his car was in the wrong place at the right time or something like that and his car was turned completely upside down and suspended like a hanged man and we have a photograph I still have it of this bemused and funny Gallic stare, a smile on this man I knew well, uh, standing next to his car, which is at 180 degrees. It was almost like an optical illusion, you know, but it wasn't. It was the real thing. And so that's what was going on when Raymond Lefebvre wrote um, wrote uh, uh, Soul Coaxing. But what was going on in the minds of everybody was just blue life as it really is. Now, this is important because what what you have to do in life is in, in experience. I mean, that sounds pompous. What What you just have to do today is really sort of say no to all this input, which is all based on a conceptual narrative. Everything is, you know, is does this does Edward Snowden mean that the narrative is changing about what a whistleblower is or is he? Or you know, who, how do how do we define a person of a certain ethnicity? You know, what what is all these stories, all these paradigms, all these categorizations? They're entirely and completely arbitrary, and they're projections. I mean, if if I'm uh, an Hispanic male, I'm I'm just a person, you know, who's trying to get along and wants to be happy. Uh, but if you start putting me into all these sort of, so the word demographic, I mean, oh, you know, I, I I feel like a Van Helsing when I hear the word demographic. That's just political. That's just current speech to talk about a an idea of the human race that is entirely. Um, based on a on a uh, or largely based on somebody's idea i mean what did uh, braxton rutledge say in john ford's immortal courtroom scene at the end of sergeant rutledge braxton was it yeah brax stood up played by that wonder woody strode and he said i ain't a swamp running so-and-so uh, you know i'm not a i'm not a i'm not my race i'm a man I'm a man. Well, it, it sounds, uh, you know, like a cliche. It sounds false almost, but it's not. It's not false. That's all I am. And uh, soul coaxing, coaxing in its popularity in a period when we thought today everybody's listening to the doors, you know, who were great, but they weren't great because they were anti-Vietnam. They were great. They were great because they were um, they were all about sex. You know, uh, have you heard, have you heard their version of Gloria? But actually just light my fire. I mean, light my fire. I mean, even, even the word, that's what it was about. Um, don't project onto it. There was a, we, we have these narratives and you know what we end up doing? We end up missing the reality. Now, let me tell you something about Nightline. Nightline was a television show from, uh, not all that long ago, hosted by Ted Koppel and very good show. It would follow the 11 o'clock news on whatever channel it was, what used to be called <laughs> the 11 o'clock news. And, um, not so long ago, Ted Koppel, in the later years of Nightline, uh, was uh, uh, speaking from a site in what used to be known as the Belgian Congo that was actually the sort of ruins of the railroad station in a remote sort of town in the the Congo, a railroad station in which a very remarkable film scene had been created uh, by Fred Zinnemann, the Hollywood director, and um, Peter uh, Finch and Audrey Hepburn in The Nun's Story. A very wonderful uh, scene when a train arrives uh, of nuns and others from Europe who are working on their medical mission in the Congo. It's a powerful movie. But he was standing in the ruins and he said, you know, I'm standing here where this movie was filmed many years ago, but actually... In the last eight years, a civil war has been raging in this country. And he said, and within, you know, a couple hundred square miles of where I'm standing, probably one million people were killed. 
And then he looked at the camera and he said, and we missed it. <coughs> when I heard that at the time, I wanted to say, you, Mr. Koppel, you missed it. Well, I'm afraid to say, well, now, this is not an attack on an individual journalist. Absolutely not. It was the, it was the fact that it had been missed. That's what's interesting. He was telling the truth. We, whoever we are, that's the world, had missed it, the death of one million people. Why? Well, you could give a million reasons why we, quote, missed it. But it was missed. The real story that was going on at that point was that. It wasn't some other thing that we were thinking about in this country, some particular individual's trial or some particular individual's private trauma or some particular murder that had strong psychosexual resonance. It was actually the death of one million people, 99, 95% of them being civilians. That's what we missed. Well, we missed the fact that we don't know anything. If we try to put a conceptuality or a um, paradigm on reality or a previously derived set of notions, we get a movie like uh, More American Graffiti, part of which, by the way, is very good, but half of which is a complete waste because it's a projection of a paradigm on real people who are simply trying to live and love and find companionship, find sex and or companionship, find friends, find some comfort in this life, you know, find, find a life that is not completely bereft, alone, and at sea and shipwrecked, find someone to live it with who cares about you and about whom you care. I mean, it's, these are the things that we all want. These are the universal things. Sex is universal. The desire for companionship is universal. Friendship is universal. Parenting is universal. All these things we all share. And yet to put this, all these, and you know what happens when we put conceptuality on reality? We, we miss that famous open sesame, and nothing opens, and we miss it. We missed it. A million people died. Now, that is why I played soul coaching. I played it primarily because I love it, and I'm going to play it again. I'm going to play it again in just a few minutes, very soon. But soul coaching, coasting, coaxing, teaches us that we don't know anything. All we know is sort of the you know, who I am, um, me and you and a dog named Boo. I, I, my verb now that I use constantly in great admiration for the songs of Lobo, Kent Lavoie, who lives in the state. Lobo, he just talks about, you know, um, he talks about third parties in marriage. <laughs> he talks about, um, don't expect me to be your friend. You know, the poor guy who's lost his girlfriend to a lover, but she still wants him to be friends. And he, she introduces him on the street in the village, as he says, to her latest lover, and the walls start closing in. I mean, that's the real. And he talks about the ballad of a simple man. I'm just a simple man. And uh, the songs are quaint, not always successful, but uh, your life does well if it's lobo-wised. And then you won't miss it. You'll realize that soul coaxing is what, in part... April of 68 was about. It wasn't just about, you know, Berkeley and uh, Columbia University. It was really, and I was there, and I knew about those other things. And I also faced the draft, just like you did, or people that you know did. Your mom and dad did. Your dad did. But um, what I was really thinking about was uh, everything that was connoted by this extraordinary and wonderful little piece of pop art. 
Thank you so very much for listening, and God bless.